0: It was 6 a.m. on the morning of January 6, 1979. The sound of the alarm clock signaled the start of another long day for Tan Quen Chai and his wife Lee Mei Ying. After rubbing the sleep from their eyes, they sat up in bed and glanced at the calendar on the wall. Without delay, they got dressed, fueled up with a quick breakfast, and headed to the nearby car park where their trusty minibus was parked. The couple were well-known figures in the close-knit community of Block 58, Geylang Baru, Singapore. For several years, they operated a minibus service that transported students to and from school, making them an essential part of the daily routine for many families in the community. Despite having to rise well before dawn each day, the couple took great care in ensuring that their minibus was clean and ready for the day's journey. The couple were not only responsible for safely transporting other children to school, they too also had four children of their own to take care of. Their children ranged from five to ten years old. Three of their boys were enrolled at Bandamere Road Primary School, while their youngest, a five-year-old daughter, attended a nearby PAP kindergarten. The Tan children had grown accustomed to their parents' early morning routine and the familiar sound of their minibus starting up downstairs. And because they didn't need to be up at the crack of dawn for school, they often slept in and woke up later than their parents. However, their mother, Li Mei Ying, always made it a point to call home at approximately 7.10 a.m. to check in on her children and make sure they were up and ready for their day. It was a routine that the family had established long ago and it helped to ensure that the children were punctual and prepared for school each day. For Miss Li, a concerned mother, The routine might have even provided some reassurance that her children were safe. The Tan siblings knew that once the phone rang, it was time to get up and start getting ready for their school day. However, on this particular morning, no one answered. Even after making three separate calls, no one picked up the phone. She began to feel worried and uneasy, sensing that something was not right. Desperate to ensure her children were safe, she reached out to one of her neighbours for help. Sensing the urgency in Mrs Tan's voice, the neighbour immediately agreed to help and went to knock on the door of the Tan's flat. However, no one came to the door. Mrs Tan got on the phone once more and urged her neighbour to try again. The neighbor's knocks echoed through the house, loud and persistent, but there was still no answer. Mrs Tan could hear the loud knocking through the phone call. The silence that followed was deafening, and Mrs. Tan began to fear for the worst. But her fears would soon become a reality—a reality that would forever change the course of their lives. You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast, brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by One Up Media. This episode contains scenes of graphic imagery and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It was just before 10 a.m. on the 6th of January, 1979. Mr and Mrs Tan had just completed the school drop-off and were now racing back home. Mrs Tan's breathing grew heavier as she spoke to her husband I just don't understand. There must be someone at home. I've called so many times. It's just impossible for all four of them not to wake up. With his eyes glued to the road, Mr Tan said, They must have woken up early and had already left for school. Let's not panic. We'll see when we get home. As the minivan pulled into the parking lot, Mrs Tan could not wait any longer. She hurriedly opened the vehicle's door and dashed towards the stairs her heart racing with fear and worry. Her husband quickly followed suit, trying to keep up with her, but she was already several steps ahead. The climb up the stairs felt like an eternity. With every step, Mrs Tan's anxiety grew stronger. When they finally reached their door, Mrs Tan's hands were trembling as she fumbled with the keys to unlock the door. As soon as she got it open, she shouted out her children's names hoping to hear their voices in response. But the house was eerily quiet, nothing except for the sound of her own voice echoing in the empty space. She pushed the bedroom door open with trembling hands, hoping to see her children sleeping safe and sound. However, her heart sank when she found the room empty. As she searched the rest of the house, her panic escalated and she called out her children's names with increasing desperation. Mr Tan attempted to console her, but he too was growing anxious. Walking towards the kitchen, they noticed something out of the corner of their eyes. A small opening between the bathroom door allowed a faint beam of light to enter, but what they saw next paralyzed the both of them in fear. It was the ominous glow of red, an intense and vivid crimson hue that could only mean one thing blood. Pushing the bathroom door open, the couple's eyes widened in horror as they took in the scene before them. The lifeless bodies of all four children were piled on top one another, their bodies mutilated and their skin pale and lifeless. Blood was everywhere, coating the towels and splattered on the walls. The pathologist's report revealed that each child had a minimum of 20 slash wounds that ran across their head and limbs. Their only daughter, a 5-year-old, was found with multiple slash marks on her face, while the right arm of their eldest child, a 12-year-old boy, was found nearly severed from his body. In no time at all, The police arrived at the scene and immediately began to investigate. Before we continue with the details of the investigation, it's important to remember that the events took place in the late 70s. The 1970s were a time of significant advances in forensic science, but the field was still in its early stages of development. The tools and techniques that we rely on today, such as DNA analysis, fingerprinting, and ballistics testing, were not yet made available. Instead, investigators usually relied on more traditional methods, such as taking photographs or using chemical tests. However, these methods had their limitations. For example, fingerprinting was a useful tool for identifying suspects, but it was extremely difficult to get a clear print from certain surfaces, and there was always a risk of contamination or smudging. Similarly, blood typing was a valuable method for linking suspects to a crime scene, but it was not foolproof there was a chance that two people could share the same blood type, which meant that blood typing alone could not rule out a suspect completely. As a result, investigators had to rely on their training, intuition and experience to solve the crime. News of the horrific murders had sparked a wave of public outrage and condemnation. Despite the persistent calls by the police for witnesses to help with the investigation, no one stepped forward. At the time, it was known that the police would only conduct press conferences at the crime scene for cases deemed to be of utmost seriousness and urgency. This protocol had been established to ensure that the media received accurate and timely information while also conveying the gravity of the situation to the public. This crime was no exception, and at the void deck of Block 58 Gelang Baru, reporters from all over the city descended upon the scene each trying to find the best spot to get a clear view of the police as they spoke. However, because the victims were all innocent children that had been brutally murdered, the emotionally charged atmosphere at the press conference was palpable. And some journalists were even moved to tears upon hearing the details of the crime. The investigation into the murders was conducted by the Criminal Investigation Department. Although they did not establish a definitive motive behind the killing of the four children, they did acknowledge the possibility of the killings being motivated by revenge. And here's why. The police concluded that the murders were premeditated, which means that the killer or killers had planned this for some time and had taken great care to avoid leaving any incriminating evidence behind. During the search of the crime scene, the police found that the area had been meticulously clean. Blood stains were found in the kitchen sink, which suggested that whoever committed the crime had taken the time to clean up after themselves before leaving the flat. Additionally, the two murder weapons, a chopper and a knife, believed to have been taken from the kitchen, were missing from the scene Since the killings were premeditated and a thorough attempt was made to eliminate the evidence, police also could not dismiss the idea of a robbery. During the 1970s, Singapore was plagued by a high number of violent robberies. These crimes were characterized by brutal and senseless acts of violence, often resulting in the loss of life or severe injury to victims. For instance, in 1971, a group of 10 men brutally murdered a 55-year-old businessman and his two employees to steal 120 gold bars worth $500,000. Similarly, in 1972, on the morning of Singapore's National Day, a 42-year-old wine shop owner was shot and killed by two men who were attempting to rob him. These incidents paint a clear picture of the dangerous and volatile environment that existed during this period. Additionally, These crimes were later proven to be premeditated and well-planned. Considering the severity of the crimes and the frequency at which such violent robberies were taking place, it is reasonable for the police to have presumed that the murder of the four children could be a case of robbery. If the motive behind the crime was robbery, it had been executed flawlessly. There was almost no evidence left behind that could be used to identify the culprit. However, As more evidence was uncovered at the scene of the crime, officials began to have reservations about the initial assumption that the motive behind the murders was related to theft or the intention to steal. For example, investigators found no signs of forced entry, suggesting that the killer was either let in by the children or had access to a key to enter the flat. This meant that the killer may have known the family or the children personally, making it easier for them to enter the flat undetected. This indicated that the crime would have been conducted by someone known to the Tan family, such as a relative, family member, or close acquaintance. It seemed highly unlikely that the culprit was a complete stranger. However, as they checked the valuables in the house and consulted with the Tan family, they found no evidence of any missing items or signs of ransacking in the flat. This raised a perplexing question for the investigators. Why would someone walk into the flat, brutally murder four innocent children and take nothing if robbery was their primary objective? Surely, something was missing here. The lack of a clear motive only added to the complexity of the investigation, leaving detectives to consider various possibilities as they searched for answers. This led the police to investigate the personal lives of the victims and their family members in more detail, looking for any potential motives or suspects who may have had a grudge against the family. One of the early theories was that the murders could be related to an illegal taunting scheme. A taunting scheme is a kind of investment plan that was relatively popular back in the 70s. The way it works was that a group of people would each put some money into a pot and the person who lived the longest would get all the money in the end. The idea was that the longer you lived, the more money you would get and if you died early, your money would go to other people in the group. Sometimes, people would cheat and try to get rid of other members of the group so they could get more money in the end. Mrs Tan's brother even spoke to the media about this idea, suggesting that the family had participated in such a scheme and that it could have led to the murders. The police quickly pursued multiple leads in this direction, talking to people who participated in the scheme and collecting proof related to potential financial disagreements. But despite this, the theory did not lead to any conclusive evidence or any leads. A day after the murders, homicide investigators questioned more than 100 neighbours of the Tan family and made public appeals for witnesses to come forward. But this effort proved to be futile. There were a couple of potential leads in the investigation, however. One of which involved residents claiming to have seen the youngest child, five-year-old Tan Chin Ni, struggling with a man from another block. This lead was the closest the police had to identifying a suspect. But unfortunately, the witness could not be located to provide further information. Furthermore, a 68-year-old neighbor of the Tan family stated that she would usually sit outside the common corridor to watch the children playing, which would have given her a clear view of anyone entering or leaving the family flat. But on the morning of the murders, she was occupied with washing her hair and did not witness anyone entering or leaving the flat. To the police, it was extremely suspicious that no one in the vicinity could have seen or heard anything related to the crime. They were now left with only one confirmation, that this was no ordinary murder, but a meticulously planned act of revenge. Several reports indicated that the perpetrator must have had a close connection to the Tan family, as well as possessed detailed knowledge of the Tan's family background and history. Particularly, Mrs Tan's medical history. Because whoever did this was apparently aware that Mrs Tan had undergone sterilization after the birth of her last child. And perhaps they wanted the Tans to have no hope of ever having a family again. This way, the Tan household would always be empty and devoid of any happiness. Two weeks after the horrific murder, a mysterious Chinese New Year greeting card arrived at the family home. The card portrayed cheerful children playing which only emphasised the heartbreaking reality that the Tan's own children were taken away from them in a brutal manner. However, it was what was written inside that left the couple speechless. The sender of the card had referred to the Tan's by their nicknames, Achai and A'eng, and wrote this message inside. Dear Achai and A'eng, Now, you can have no more offspring. Ha ha ha. Sign The Murderer. That's coming up in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian True Crime Podcast brought to you by Media Corp and produced by OneUp Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, head on down to our website at Asian This episode was researched, produced, and written by Yo Jin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks to executive producers Danny Cordy and Barry Toe from Media Corp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous.